morning, Dawson. As you take your copy of God's Word, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 1 as our choir and orchestra, Linda and Brent and Dan and John, thank you for leading us so beautifully as, as we ponder a new God as creator, God as infinite, God as eternal, who has revealed himself to all of us that call him Lord and Savior. I am thankful that as we begin this 2018 year, we have a theme as last year's 2017 theme was prayer. And throughout last year, you saw ways that corporately, individually, ways that the ministries of Dawson came around that theme. And this year, the theme that we are going to be highlighting throughout 2018 is the Word of God. So from mission endeavors locally and globally, you'll see how the Word of God intersects with those endeavors. You see if your parents of children, Danielle and the rest of her team, John and others, have come with this Ethos book uh, challenge in 2018 so that our children are rooted in God's Word. If you're parents of students this morning, you see how Lance and Abby and the student ministry team have foundations, this 260-day Bible reading plan. So from life groups to missions to programmatic emphases, the Word of God, as it has been and will continue to be uh, long after 2018, will be what galvanizes us together as a people. So as we think together, as we start this theme, I want us to look at Genesis 1 through 11 in the coming months ahead as we start in the beginning. Genesis 1 through 11, these 11 chapters really are volume one of the greatest hits of the Bible. Uh, all the essential cuts are there from God as creator, Adam and Eve in the first marriage. You've got Adam naming the animals there. You have the sinister serpent that, that is there in the fall that occurs after the temptation of Eve and ultimately Adam. You have these mysterious places where the daughters of Eve are together with the, these, these strange angelic figures. We'll talk about that later as we get to that section. You have the corrupt humanity God regretting. He created. You have the flood. You have Noah and the ark. You have the tower of Babel. So you have in these 11 chapters what for many of us in this room is very familiar even if you didn't grow up attending church, it's very difficult to live, even in the American culture of 2018, without some cognition of these stories. Because music, the arts, literature, uh, all of these things have as a backdrop some of these essential stories from Genesis 1 through 11. Now, if you are in this room, and I would imagine many of you have uh, grown up in the church... And so you literally cut your teeth on these stories. It very well may be that you were sitting there in a preschool nursery and some of the first stories that you remember hearing were these stories. Very well may be that some of you were in vacation Bible school and you remember the Kool-Aid and you remember the cookies and you remember the flannel graph pictures and portraits of Adam and Eve. These are familiar stories, but I want us to hear the familiar afresh and anew. Oftentimes our, our perceived over-familiarity with stories uh, eludes the, 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 the way that we can stand under God's Word, and it continues to speak to us 
It continues to challenge us. And there are insights that are to be gained every time we open God's Word. So as we set these kind of essential pieces in place, it will help us as we continue in this journey of God's Word, even heading down the road in, in the rest of 2018. Now, I want you to know that our strategy this morning is a little unique. And so what I'm going to do this morning is to set a larger context for not only Genesis 1 through 11, but what type of book Genesis is. So we're going to hop on a plane and we're going to fly up to 30,000 feet and we're going to look at the terrain from that vantage point and the, at the end of the sermon, we're going to land the plane and we're going to walk around the scenery of the first two verses of Genesis chapter 1. So at this pace, two verses a time, we will be finished with this series in 2022. So you can... No, what we'll do is we'll land the plane, and I know we're going to rent a car, and we'll be able to get through uh, the, the rest of this a little bit quicker here. So uh, four questions that are going to guide us this morning as we begin our study of Genesis. First question, who wrote Genesis? Now, the question is a question that doesn't seem to be that important, but it is important, and it's important for us to be on the same page as we think through this. Uh, traditionally, for 1,900 years, really the, the standard Christian answer and even Jewish answer was Moses is the primary author of the first five books of the Old Testament. We know those as the Torah. You know those as the Pentateuch, Penta five. So you have places in those first five books where we have Moses as giving, uh, writing down things. God giving Moses things to write down. So a couple of examples. Deuteronomy 31, 24. When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end. You have another, another reference in Numbers chapter 33, verse 2. You even have Jesus in his earthly ministry in John chapter 5 saying, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Verse 46, you see it on the screen. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. So it is, uh, it is clear to us that Moses is writing books of the Bible that we have here. He's writing parts of those. Now, it's also simultaneously clear that when you just look at the evidence there, the first five books there, there are obviously places that Moses didn't write. Deuteronomy chapter 34 talks about Moses' death. It talks about the aftermath of Moses' death. So it is obvious that there were others that came alongside. It very well may be that it was Joshua or Ezra or even an unknown scribe who would have taken things that Moses wrote, added even to those under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, compiled those as we have the book that we know is Genesis and the first five books of the Bible. Now, all of this doesn't need to make us nervous. Uh, the Holy Spirit, under His inspiration, uses this. So I, for shorthand, am going to say Moses wrote. And so who wrote Genesis? We'll talk about Moses. Second question, what is the structure to Genesis? What's the structure to Genesis? Well, the first 11 chapters are what's called the primeval history of the world. It is, for, for a lack of better understanding, it is the uh, panoramic shot. And so the first 11 chapters deals on the panoramic setting of your camera. It sees things wide screen. Now, chapter 12 to chapter 50 is what's called the patriarchal history of the book of Genesis. So it moves 
from the widescreen panoramic shot to close-ups. So in the same book, you have the widescreen shot and then you have the close-ups of people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and all of their actual family members here. There's another structure that I think is important for you to understand as we're just seeing what Genesis is, what kind of literature this is. What, we want to take it on its own terms. You'll see 10 references throughout the book of Genesis that is a unifying theme, and it sounds like this. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And you go over just three chapters. Chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Then you go one more chapter. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. And I could continue on. Because this theme, this silver lining throughout 50 books or 50 chapters of the book of Genesis unifies Genesis. You'll see this in chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter uh, 25, and then chapter 36, and then in chapter 37. Why do I tell you this? Well, I want you to see under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the artistry and the symmetry of God's word. It perfectly unifies. There's five references to these are the generations in the primeval history, the first 11 chapters. Then there are five references in the patriarchal history, chapter 12 to chapter 50. There's artistry. There's symmetry. There's this perfect combination of the panoramic and the close-up shot. Why do I tell you this? Where there oftentimes can be the temptation for Christians to over-spiritualize things. There oftentimes can be the temptation to, in, to sound sort of spiritual, and you might know people that have said this, or I have close friends of mine that, that talk like this at times, and I just want to give you permission to not have to talk like this. And the way this occurs is that you say, you know, there's just really, really big things that are going on in this world. Surely God doesn't have the time to be concerned with my needs my issues. But I want you to hear that God can simultaneously set his eyes panoramically and then in the close-up mode simultaneously. He can handle the big picture and he also can handle the minute details of your life. And this is important because there's some of you in this room that say, you know, I've been watching all the mudslides in California, the utter de devastation that is occurring in people's lives, surely God isn't that concerned that my house has been on the market for the last year and it doesn't seem like it's going to sell? He's got the panoramic and the close-up in mind simultaneously. You might say, you know, I know there are 125,000 Iraqi Christians that had to flee their homes because of radical Islamic persecution. So surely God doesn't have time to be concerned about my marital issues. God has the panoramic and the close-up simultaneously in mind. There are 37 million people globally with HIV AIDS. Surely God doesn't have that much of time for me to come to him, talking to him about my son or daughter that has had the flu this past week. God has the panoramic 
and the close-up simultaneously in mind. So church, do not grow weary in asking God to intercede in your life in the minute details because that is where you live. And just as Genesis has the panoramic in the first 11 chapters, so it's got the minute details of a guy by the name of Abraham and his barren wife. So it's got the sibling rivalries of this guy by the name of Joseph and his brothers. So the panoramic and the close-up, he, because he's infinitely wise and infinitely knowledgeable, can handle your details and simultaneously multitask and handle the details of our universe. Two questions. The first question is, who wrote Genesis? The second question is, what is the structure that we discover in Genesis? The third question, what are the themes in Genesis? Now, this is going to help us, because if we take this book at its value, at a 35,000 feet, you, be, you begin to discover that the themes that are present in these early chapters of Genesis, they help us understand how God has revealed himself to us throughout the rest of the Bible, and also how God has revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ. If you are a faithful Jewish person living in, in Malachi's day, you wouldn't have called Genesis, Genesis. You, you don't call it Bereshith. It's the, in the beginning, the Hebrew word, in the beginning, Bereshith. That's what a, a faithful Jew would have known. And then around 250 B.C., the Hebrew Bible is translated into Greek. It's what's called the Septuagint. And there, the uh, uh, translators to Greek titled the book of Genesis, well, Genesis. And what does Genesis mean in Greek? It means origins. Why would they call it origins? Because that's the themes that they discover in the book of Genesis. So you see the origins of life. You see the origin of marriage. You see the origin of work. You see the origin of evil. You see the origin of culture. You see the origin of language. You see the origin of diversity. You see the origin of even God's covenant people, the Israelites, and God's desire and design to use them to be a blessing to all the nations. So the themes of origins are right there in the first 11 chapters. Now, there's more than that because there's a reoccurring pattern in the first five stories, in the first 11 chapters. Now, the five stories that I want us to think about are the stories of sin. So you have the story of sin entering the Garden of Eden. You have the story of Cain and Abel and sin entering into sibling relationships. You have the sons of God and the daughters of man. You have the flood and the Tower of Babel. You have all of these stories. And there's a way that all of these sin stories are introduced to us. And how they're tied together that help us understand the Bible. It helps us understand how God continues to reveal himself to us through the Holy Spirit. And this is the way these sin stories are revealed. So throughout those first five sin stories, you see that sin is described. You see the description of sin, the sinister serpent that, that is there in the garden. So sin is described. Then you have this next structure that God announces this, that there's a penalty. So Adam and Eve cannot stay in the Garden of Eden. There is going to be a curse that comes upon them. But then you see that grace is introduced. Grace is not a New Testament invention at the coming of Jesus Christ. 
But grace is right there in the animal coverings upon Adam and Eve as they understand their nakedness. And then you see this penalty and punishment, how God punishes sin. Well, we could, we could play that out in the story of Cain and Abel. We can play that out in humanity prior to the flood. We can play this out in Noah, naked and drunk after the flood. So it's all there in these opening chapters of the book of Genesis. And in many ways, these opening chapters are sort of like a decoder ring. They help you understand the rest of the Bible and how to interpret the rest of the Bible. Did any of you catch, it would be hard not to catch if you own a television. Uh, over Christmas, the Christmas story is played just constantly. There are Christmas story marathons all throughout uh, the Christmas season. And so you could have watched Ralphie uh, just day in and day out wanting to get a, a BB gun, and you could have seen every day that these well-meaning family members and friends said, Ralphie, you'll shoot your eye out. Even when he goes to Santa Claus and Macy's, and, and, and Santa Claus pushes him down the slide and says, you'll shoot your eye out. Well, all throughout the Christmas story, there are these side stories in that movie. It's really why it's become so popular within culture. There are all these little side avenues that have become part of our culture. And one of them is that Ralphie was a part of the Orphan Annie's, the Radio Orphan Annie Secret Society. And you remember there's this little side story where he's trying to decode the special message and he finally gets the decoder ring and here he is at 10 years old. He's going to get the secret message that only people that are a part of Orphan Annie Secret Society are going to know. So he begins to decode the secret message and he gets to the end of it and he says, be sure to drink your Ovaltine, and he was very disappointed, wasn't he? I want to tell you something. John, can I tell you this? John and I are in all of the services. The 825 didn't laugh at that. You didn't laugh at that. The 940, they loved that story. <laughs> they cracked up. I mean, it was just this, it's like this right here. So 940 illustration, not 11, not 825. <laughs> Got it. Written it in my notes right there. So so it's a decoder ring. It helps you. It helps you understand. Does everybody know what Ovaltine is? Is that, is that what it is? Is that what I need to explain? Okay. So these early chapters, they're this decoder ring and the themes of the rest of the Bible, sin and penalty and grace and punishment, we cannot understand. You cannot understand your problem as a sinner without passing through the terrain of these first 11 chapters. You can't understand the power of grace without passing through these first 11 chapters. You can't understand why you are sitting in these pews here raising your voices to sing in praise without passing through these 11 chapters, it is a decoder ring of sorts to help us understand the themes that find their culmination in the book of Revelation. Three questions. What are the themes? What is the structure? Who wrote it? So let's land the plane. Let's walk around two verses. So look in your copy of God's Word, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. 
The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Final question that is a primary question. If you don't answer this question correctly, your understanding of who you are, your understanding of God will be so misplaced. So this question is a primary question here for us. Who is God? And even in these first two verses that we're going to continue on as we move throughout the book of Genesis here, that there is a clear answer. The first thing that the Bible is describing for us is that God is the primary subject. God is the subject line of the first sentence of the Bible. We're not there. Elohim, the Hebrew word for God, in the, in the opening section of the book of Genesis, is 35 times is there. Elohim, God said, God saw, God separated, God called, God made. And it is important for you to hear that God's word is his revelation to you. He is the subject who acts, we are the object. So it's easy within our culture to misunderstand who the subject of the Bible is. And when you misunderstand this, you, you misunderstand everything. So you will hear people say, you know, the Bible really is just practical advice for living in the 21st century. The Bible is just a guidebook for your best life now. You want to find your best life now? Read the Bible. And then you open up the Bible and you're like looking for your best life now. And then you got Adam and Eve not quite living their best life now as they get kicked out of the Garden of Eden. You got, you got Adam saying, she did it. She made me do it. Not the best life now for their marriage right there. You're looking for your best life now, and you got Cain killing Abel. Not really the best life now for the first brothers that were introduced into Scripture. You're looking for your best life now, and you got humanity in the midst of all of these things before the flood, all kinds of, of sexual and sensual sins have entered into humanity right there at the outset. Not really the best life now for all of culture. you got Noah, this great man of faith. The first thing that he does is get drunk and he's naked and there's a curse upon his family, not really know his best life now. And it is important for you to hear this really clearly, that the Bible tells us that when you're not living your best life now, and when you realize that you can't live your best life now, that he is still there. That he is the subject who loves you, has revealed himself to you, desires to have a relationship with you, that he's got a plan before you fell, he's got a plan when you fall, and he's got a plan for eternity to come if you would accept his love and his grace. This is a book about God, and we need God because we can't, we won't, and we will not get our life together. This is this story. God is the primary subject, God is the eternal creator. So if you're looking in these first two verses here, it answers the question, when was God born? Five-year-olds, six-year-olds, four-year-olds, inquisitive kids are asking, when was God born, mom? When was God born, dad? And you have to say, well, God's there. 
We're not introduced to the start of God. God is is present before time. God has always been. God will always be. There's no beginning to God. There's no end to God. And then there's one day in this infinite, timeless being that he decides to create. That word create is a word bara. That word is a, a word that is used only of God when he creates. So when we create, we don't create like God creates. The Latin phrase for that was ex nihilo. God created out of nothing. When you create, so you make a cake this afternoon, and you say, this is a homemade cake. Well, you didn't create that flour. You didn't create that sugar. I mean, we have to draw upon the raw materials. But God, when he creates, he creates out of nothing. He creates. There is no light, then there is light. The anonymous writer of the book of Hebrews would say it like this. By faith... We understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And when we understand this, it it leads us to ponder who God is. And then when we ponder the vastness of God, how he is infinitely good and he has always been, that pondering of who God is, it draws us to praise him. So Stephen Hawking, Stephen Hawking, who is in many ways one of this brilliant physicists at Cambridge University, gentleman, and he talks about the galaxy and he talks about it in, in these amazing terms that are beyond my comprehension. He talks about the galaxy being a hundred thousand light years across, which is 600 trillion miles. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, is one of a hundred thousand million galaxies that can be observed. And each one of these galaxies has a hundred thousand million stars. So I want you to ponder this. And then as you ponder this, I've got a praise for you that has been given to us. As the psalmist would say, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. But not only is this infinite God created this, what seems to be this infinite galaxy and universe that we live in, but, but he's created you, he's created me. He's, he, he's good with the details. We're, we're comprised of these atoms here. We're primarily 99% hydrogen, carbon, oxygen atoms. If you count all these up in an individual, you have seven, followed by 27 zeros. And so we ponder this, and, and we're we're given the opportunity to praise him. And we have, we have a script by which to do this, as the psalmist would say, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I don't know what you're facing this morning. I don't know if life is sort of in neutral right now and there's a malaise of just post Christmas, holiday, blues. The work is good, but it's not really great. Marriage is good, but it's not all that great. I mean, all of the things that you might could be facing right now. When you look up, it leads you to praise, the psalmist would say. When you look in the mirror, it leads you to praise because behind, as you look up and as you look in the mirror, behind you and behind all that is, there is God, your creator. 
Some of you work in environments. Some of you know of environments where the CEO is this amazing visionary. She sees the absolute big picture. Or you have this manager and, and, and she is really good with details, but not really good with the big picture. Or the CEO is, is really, really good with the big picture, but it's not really good with the details. And, and here's God. He's good with the big picture and he's good with the details. Here's God creating this, this world in which we live, this vast universe by his design that is a part of a galaxy by his design and a part of a universe that is by his design. And as you walked in here and as I walked in here and who we are is by design. And as we ponder this, it leads us to praise. You don't have to do much imagining to know that there are times in life where people grow up in small towns and they make it big. They become famous. And their fame becomes a barrier to intimacy. Every year we make this pilgrimage to, to Wrigley Field. I take a boy or take all the boys. And, and so we have a routine. The field opens two hours before. So we, we run to the third baseline because you can maybe during the season get an autograph. And so we ran and nobody was there the last time we went there. And we saw a relief pitcher. And the previous times we had been there, we had seen Chris Bryant, the third baseman, and Addison Russell, the shortstop, and Anthony Rizzo, the first baseman. And we were calling out to Javi Baez, the second baseman, and Jake Arrieta, the pitcher, please, please sign it. This is my 10-year-old. You can sign this right here. And they have to walk by. They have to walk by because if they stop for one, they've got to stop for all. They can't do that. I get that. But we ran down there, and there was a relief pitcher. We came right up to him and said, hey, can you sign this? And he said, oh, I just I can't do it. If I do it for you, I've got to do it for everybody. And then my son started crying. No, he didn't. He didn't start crying or anything like that. <laughs> and so he went on. And I get that. You get that. If, 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 if people that are so famous, if they have the concert, and then they stay after to, to visit with all the adoring fans. They're just swamped. And they're swarmed. If the Hollywood actor stops and talks to everybody in the restaurant, restaurant, he can't have a meal. We get that. We understand that. Even if we don't live that. But here's God. The one who is eternally infinite. Here's God. The one who is eternally famous. Here's God who has always been. Who always will be. He is unchanging. And here is God stopping not only to create, but stopping to sign his autograph in his word, revealing himself to us. And we see the imprint of the ink, and it is the blood of his son, and this infinite creator, God desires to have a relationship with you because he loved you, the world that he created so much that he would send his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This is good news, that he is an infinitely good creator who is the personal and primary subject of his word but we are his object and he has set his eyes upon us and if you would only believe today the God who has created all will sign your heart and know you personally you have sinned I have sinned we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God but this is good news for us here today to know that he loves you in spite of your sins. This is good news. This is his word. Let us pray.